There was an infamous study published by Pendo where they reported that roughly 80% of features in the typical cloud software product are rarely or never used. And the report concluded that over $29 billion was invested building these poorly adopted features. I'm Thomas Law, the Executive Director of the Technology and Services Industry Association. Welcome to Tectonic, the podcast where we explore what makes technology business models successful in today's world. In this episode, I have Natasha Narayan from Iceberg IQ joining me. We're going to talk about techniques companies can pursue to better understand what customers really want and need. For those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute. We track the financial performance of the largest publicly traded technology providers on the planet. More importantly, we perform deep operational benchmarking with the technology companies that are on the TSI platform. It is that data that informs the insights you will hear in this series. So let's get into it. Natasha, welcome. And first of all, tell us how you started your career in tech and about your current role at Iceberg IQ. Sure. Thank you, Thomas. And by the way, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm really excited to be speaking with TSIA. So yeah, my career started a long time ago, but very early. I was, I was, I'd finished high school and I'd moved to Australia and I was studying psychology. I started out as a receptionist at an Apple reseller and then very quickly got promoted into sales. I did that for a while, then went to another Apple reseller. And then Xerox had a new pilot program where they were bringing on uh, a couple of new hires that they had some technology sales experience, but they really wanted to train them on how to sell. So I ended up in this pilot program, working with the most seasoned team at Xerox in, in Sydney and looking after accounts all over Australia. So really got my sales chops there. Um, and then a company named Right Now Technologies was opening in Australia. Some listeners might be familiar with it. It was a Montana company that did uh, customer service, self-service knowledge management so for 10 years, I was with them through an IPO, built the Australian operations, and then they transferred me to Canada to, to build and grow Canada. They were acquired by Oracle in 2011. Um, and then I joined Gainsight for a few years, which I'm sure many of the listeners know as a first Canadian employee, so built the Canadian business uh, for a few years. When I was at Gainsight, we used to use a firm called Eigenworks, and Eigenworks was our key research partner from the beginning, and they used to conduct these wins and loss, when losses interviews, win loss interviews for us. And so we would get this incredible amount of insight and data through this qualitative research. And um, fast forward to 2019, Alan Armstrong, the founder of Eigenworks actually passed away. And so the company was going to be shut down. The team was shutting it down. And I stepped in with a few of the team members and we rebooted it as Iceberg. Um, but really in kind of honor of Alan's legacy that he built. And over the last couple of years, we've continued with the methodology, the team, a lot of the same customers and just continue to grow, but really refine the methodology to have uh, many more customer success, I guess, principles based on my understanding and, and knowledge. But yeah, that's, that's how my career's evolved. And now I'm the CEO and co-founder. I have two partners. Uh, so three female leaders of Iceberg IQ. We're in Canada most of our clients are in the U.S. We work um, exclusively with B2B software companies, usually enterprise software, um, and we work on the win-loss side, but we have a growing practice. I'd say 50% of our practice is on the churn analysis side, and then we do some other interesting studies, which we can get into around ROI or business value justification and that sort of thing as well. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for the background, and you know, I just have to comment. It's, it's amazing how many people 
uh, in tech came through the halls of Xerox in terms of training on the sales side, including Bill you know, McDermott, who's the CEO of ServiceNow. But I, there's just so many people in the TSI community that that's where they cut their teeth on selling you know, technology. They had a really good program there. Like you said, you could take a talent that wasn't from sales and, and they had enough structure around it and really teach you that profession. So I, I think that I didn't know that about your background. So that's really cool. But I'm more curious about what you're doing right now. And so you know, the name of your firm implies that, that, that there is a lot of information about customer needs just hiding kind of just below the waterline. And I wanted to start with methodology. How can companies better understand the needs of their customers? Mm-hmm. And so we have a methodology that's been proven over many years around the interviews. But I would say whether you call it a voice of the customer program, a win-loss program, churn analysis, um, CX, whatever it might be, the point of it is getting started. And I think sometimes companies get scared a bit or they, they look to surveys. And I do believe in quantitative research as well. But this is, it's challenging work. You know, it takes time and effort and planning to have a program in this in place, whether you do it in-house or use a third party like us. But I think that's really the key is, is have some sort of programmatic way in place that you're spending time actually having conversations with your prospective clients, your existing clients, and if possible clients that have left you um, to really understand and, and peel out that entire journey across the buyer journey and the customer journey. So yeah, we believe that, uh, you know, the iceberg um, application, it can be applied in so many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like digging beneath the surface, going deeper in conversations, not, uh, not you know, assuming what you think you know is, is reality. Um, but I would say, yeah, just having some sort of program in place. I do think one of the best practices, though, what we've seen for successful um, implementations of this is it really needs to come from the top. It needs to be the CEO that's on board um, because if it's, if it's um, siloed into just one functional area, and I think historically this has really largely sat with product marketing, um, but you need to have all of the functional leaders and the CEO on board to be able to listen to this and action the insights. Otherwise, it's, um, it's just not as effective. And, and so executive sponsorship, key in, in the approach here, but also what I heard there was this difference between surveys and conversations. Mm-hmm. Surveys obviously can give you a big end and you can look for patterns there. Conversations are more, you know, obviously more time intensive, more resource intensive, but, it, you know, the, but the signal liquidity is different. So talk a little bit about that, you know, how you view the differences between using surveys versus conversations. Yeah. So I think that comes back to our methodology as well. So we spend time up front in the call, really understanding um, the, the person, the organization, what they were setting out to achieve. And then we try to uncover kind of what they were looking for um, and all the decision factors that came along the way that pulled or pushed them towards and away from different vendors. So that becomes a very conversational flow. We, we develop a brief in the beginning, but we don't use a guided set of questions. And I think that's the key difference between qualitative and quantitative. We're allowing the interviewee to kind of guide the interview, but we're, we're directing it based on what we know that the client wants to find out as well. So it does make it a lot more time and energy required to then take all of this unstructured data and put it into some useful format so you can do the analysis. But I think, um, I, think, I think that's the key. With surveys, you're limited to, you're only getting responses based on the questions that you've asked, as opposed to really open-ended questions or being able to go deeper and deeper and really dig if, if you're hearing that there's something that the customer is concerned about or the buyer. So, you know, so what I hear that, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a conversation. So you can come in with a set of questions that you plan to ask, but once you get in there, it really is a conversation and you're going where that conversation leads you in terms of insights, big difference mm-hmm. than, than the limitations of a survey. So, so I think I was reading this on your website, 
that 40 to 60% of the end customers that you reach out to, right? So you have a client and you're going to go talk to their end customers, you reach out to them, they're willing to be interviewed. Why, why do you think that rate is so high? I think it's um, well, for a number of reasons. So when we're very fortunate to have a very good team and the woman that leads that team, she's been doing this for a very long time. And so we use a multi-touch cadence. It's almost like an SDR or a BDR where, uh, you know, there's three to five touches combined with email and phone spread out over appropriate number of days. Um, we never do blind research. We are, we're always very transparent about who we're contacting on behalf of. And I think because sales cycles can sometimes take months or, you know, off and on over years, Mm -hmm. they've invested all of that time, they're willing to share. And so we're finding that, yeah, individuals are willing to share their feedback. And, and often we hear that they really appreciated that the organization reached out because maybe they chose not to go forward with them. The fact that they're willing to take the time and invest in a program like this to under, to understand what was really going on was really important to them. And Sometimes, I mean, if the feedback, especially say it's around the sales experience, um, they're not going to be that willing to share that directly with the vendor during the time. They're going to give them, you know, some basic response or maybe some product feedback or something like that. And, and that's the stuff that you really want to be able to uncover through a third party. We find that they're just more candid in, in sharing that as well. We do provide an incentive. So it's a $75 gift card or a tradable donation. There's the odd time where maybe they're not allowed to accept a gift, but it's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. I think that does help. Um, and the nature of the team there, you know, one's a, one's an actress. So she's used to taking rejection from being in auditions. You know, it's, it's a hard role yeah. when you're reaching out to these people multiple times. So I think, you know, it's also about the hiring and development of the team and, and them knowing that it's not personal, like the rejection's not personal. And, and um, we're all professionals just, just trying to help our client do better. Well, and so a couple of things that I heard there. So first of all, you are following up with both wins and losses, right? So, so mm-hmm. you're following both of the scenarios. It sounds like there's a little bit of art involved in, in getting that person across the goal line, right? So you guys have some skills there to say, hey, this is going to be worth your time. But as you mentioned at the opening here, I mean, this is these are B2B clients. So that, that customer or, or again, win or loss, they invested probably a lot of time and energy in that sales cycle. And so, so, you know, talking about that in terms of what worked or didn't work is probably something of interest to them because they invested so much time. Um, and so I think that's an important, you know, a- attribute uh, as well. But if we think about our own personal lives, we get so many surveys after we've bought something saying, tell us how great we were. Would you rate our service from, you know, one to 10? But how many times does someone follow up with you and say, hey, you know, I know that you were looking at us and you didn't buy, why? I mean, that to me, it just seems such a rare occurrence, but there's there's so much insight in that conversation. Absolutely. And implementations fail sometimes. You know, it might have been a really close call when they made that original decision. And, you know, if you're able to understand what was holding them back or maybe maybe there's an opportunity if it doesn't work out with that current vendor or if this person moves to another organization that might be a better fit or they can recommend, you know, I'll talk about that a bit later. They're going to remember you. But yeah, recommending to their peers as well. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's, that's a great point. I mean, so sometimes a loss isn't really a loss mm-hmm. <laughs> in the long term. And by having that conversation right after they made a decision to go elsewhere, they're going to remember that and they're going to keep you in mind. Yeah, we actually we actually triage losses when we interview them. Um, they could be a loss, an actual loss to a competitor, but we have two other types. One is status quo, meaning they decided to stay with the incumbent or whatever it was that they were using. Mm-hmm. And then the third is no decision. So it's still out there. And it could be that the, the rep or had been marked in Salesforce or the CRM is lost, but it's actually they haven't made a decision yet and they just weren't aware. Yep, there you go. So so I want to ask this question about the, the, the buyer. So, so we have been reading for years 
that technology purchasing is shifting from a technical buyer to the business buyer. There's more focus on value realization from that buyer. So, so in your work, what shifts are you seeing in customer priorities? Yeah, so I agree 100%. We're definitely seeing that, that value realization shift. And prospects are looking for assistance with that business case. So that's the other thing we're finding is that if they don't want the onus to just be on them to try to help. It's the vendors that really help them build that out and model it and what the projections might be conservatively or best and worst case based on the use cases that they want to address um, that can help really make the difference. Um, tying to strategic initiatives, like if we do, if we, we have a broad set of customers across a range in the software industry, from very technical solutions to ones that might be CRM or marketing automation, um, cyber, you name it. And the technical ones, I would say generally they tend to be more table stakes and there is, it's a much harder to quantify the value if it's, if it's just a requirement or a tool set, but if there's some way that you can tie it to a strategic business initiative, that's, that's a way that um, they can differentiate POCs. We see are coming up more and more in the sales cycle, um, making it really easy, being flexible with that POC. If the duration needs to go longer for them really to get, to feel comfortable with that decision. For our listeners define POC for, yeah, just so everybody's. Yes. Pr- proof of concept yeah. or a pilot. It could be a paid pilot. There could be some investment in it, but it's some way that they can really um, get their hands. They want to be able to get their hands on the technology beyond just a demonstration or a, a demo site. So um, POCs are coming up. And I think in the you know, advent of growth of SaaS, switching costs, like people can switch a lot easier as well. So POCs, um, we're seeing that, that come up. Um, buyers are also looking for insight into the product roadmap. So there might be gaps or particular integrations that they want in place, but knowing that it's going to be down the line, even if it is a few months down the road, that's really important. And knowing that they have a say into that innovation roadmap as well. Um, and then the other one that we're seeing is really Maybe not only um, being siloed into one or two use cases, you know, if, if uh, a buyer can determine that there's multiple areas of the business or a number of use cases that could be addressed by a solution, that makes it much easier for them to, to buy and then also renew. This concept of, of POC, I think, dovetails into the concept of product-led growth that we hear a lot about now, right? Is the fact that, hey, can I go and get on your product, start using your product, start having some level of value, you know, and say, oh, this is working. Now I want to go to the next steps. I mean, do you see those two things? Because, you know, to me, proof of concept and doing that with the customer, you know, back in the day, it's okay. We've got to go, you know, put this installation in. we got to get approval for this. This is kind of out of the norm. We stand it up. We hope that they're going to start to get some value. But, it, you know, it was pretty cumbersome. It was pretty expensive. And, and, and ideally, if you didn't have to do it, you didn't really want to do it. Right, as opposed to product-led growth as a mentality where that's really built into your entire go-to bit, you know, go-to-market model. What what are your observations on that? Yeah, exactly. And and with product-led growth, you know, the UI and the UX becomes really important as well. And so we often hear, well, when I was comparing this vendor with this vendor, the 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 user experience it just seemed outdated. And and through that POC, you need to get the users to adopt to make sure that it's going to expand and there's there's going to be adoption. So. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, things have changed. You need to yeah. make it easy, even if it's just what's the first value moment or the MVP that you can get implemented. Maybe there's no integrations. You're just bringing a subset of data, but there needs to be some way that they can um, build that confidence in the product that it's going to do yeah. what you say it's going to do. So one, one more question about this difference in buyers from the technical buyer versus the business buyer, because I think there are a lot of enterprise tech companies that have cut their teeth on basically selling to IT. That's been their main audience. And, and, the, and the big meeting would be, I, you know, I was able to get into the CIO's office 
And that's going to be a lot about technical integration and reliability and, you know, those technical capability kind of things. And now you go to a business buyer who has a very different perspective, right? They care a lot less about all these, these technical issues. And to your point, they want to know, you know, is this going to, you know, basically scratch the itch of my business problem? Where's this thing going? Is it going to have the features I'm looking for, you know, a year from now for my team? So, so in terms of your clients, I mean, do you see, I mean, how are they adjusting to, I mean, is it different sales skills, is it different approaches? Because, you know, I do see a lot of tech providers struggling with that pivot from the personalities of who they're selling to. What, what, what do you see there? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's interesting. We're, we're hearing a lot about the relationship and especially again, with a SaaS solution, you, you might, you, you might only be with them for a year. It might be five years, but you want to have that confidence up front that this is a partner that you want to work with and that you can trust that they're going to get you there because there are so many failed implementations or problems come up and you need to have, you need to have that confidence. So I think that um, reps need to be more enabled actually around the technology itself. So I think that reps should be able to do a basic demo of their product and not rely on a solutions engineer. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, being a, you know, one the other theme that we're hearing a lot of is, is if a vendor isn't taking the time to really understand what the, and it seems so basic, right? It's like really understand what I'm trying to achieve and what my business goals are. And instead just taking approach of this is how we know it works. This is what, this is what we do. This is what we've done for other clients. It's that balance, yeah. but really taking the time. So I think, you know, doing that deep discovery is, is quite important. Um, we've had interviews where from the outset, if, you know, as soon as they fill out that web form expressing interest, and then if there's a delay from hearing back from the organization by a couple of weeks, and they've had to follow up, that then sets the tone of what the whole relationship is going to be like. And they, and they, it's always in the back of their mind that is this company really going to be responsive to my needs once I, once I sign up with them. And so, yeah, I would say those are, those are a few examples uh, I can think of around business side. So, so closing, I mean, what I hear there, I mean, closing that gap between once the, the customer, potential customer signals any type of interest, regardless of maybe where, even where it came within the organization, that, you know, you're responsive to that. You're jumping on that. You're getting, you're getting the dialogue going and they're going to recognize that as, okay, this is a responsive company. And again, I think if we were saying, look, I look at the title, I don't think this person's senior enough. I don't think, you know, so you're making decisions about that. That could be not the right call, right? Because this person may be, you know, manager, you know, somewhere in the middle of the food chain, but they, they have a big influence on this purchase from the business side. So yeah. And you can turn them around to a great champion and then help facilitate interviews with, you know, all the other stakeholders inside the organization. Um, there is something else with decision makers moving around. And so you see that, that their repeat mm-hmm. buyers will often interview somebody that's a repeat buyer for an offering. Um, and it's what I'm seeing is it's more about matching the buying process as opposed to the selling process. Mm-hmm. And the biggest frustration that they express is maybe they've already used you before. If they call you back, they don't, they don't want to go through all these different steps. Like just make it super easy for them, accelerate the sales cycle and, and allow like yeah. match their process. Or if they um, aren't able to share certain aspects of who they looked at or the pricing or whatever it might be, if the vendor is, is a little bit more arrogant or haughty or tries to force the client down a particular path, then that can sometimes um, affect the deal and, and their willingness to go forward with you as well. So, I, you know, I'm curious, what are some of the more interesting or surprising needs you have uncovered when interviewing technology buyers? Because, I mean, again, you go in with your set of questions and, you know, you think it's going to go a certain way and then you hear something you didn't expect. Yeah, um, it's, it's funny. Like we, we, we often find interesting surprises. Like I remember one interview where um, I, I asked him how much he intended to save when he did his projections. And he said, uh, 
a billion actually, I, I had thrown out a number like, oh, are you thinking like a million in savings? And he's like, yeah, not, not quite a billion. It was around, you know, 880 million. And so I actually <laughs> reached out to him the following day just to confirm and validate the numbers. But it was, that was really surprising. And our client had no idea that the business case was that significant either. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that was, that was a really neat one and a really neat use case because that was one they could replicate then across other like, you know, similar clients in the same industry. Uh, you know, we had one where it turns out they really wanted our client, they really wanted to proceed with our vendor, but through uh, their due diligence process, they had come up, they had they recognized that there was a breach, a security breach that our client had experienced four years before. But when they had the call with IT and with legal, with the senior executives, it was a little bit brushed under the, the table. Like they didn't, they didn't take it seriously to say, oh yes, that acknowledge this, this did happen. And these are the steps that we did to remediate that. So that I thought was interesting because it was such a shame. They had, they handled that differently. They would have proceeded. I'm definitely seeing this shift. Uh, and I think, I don't know if it's with COVID and just everyone being remote right now, but um buyers, they look, they look to G2 crowd and trust ratings. They look to review sites and analysts, but they more so seem to be looking at their peers for Interesting. Uh, valid, validation yeah. about vendors. So these peer groups, back channel references, um, you know, it's nice to still get the references from the vendor as you're doing your evaluation anyway, but I find that these back channel conversations are, are uh, really influencing many decisions too. Yeah. That that's, so just their own personal network. They're reaching out and saying, Hey, I'm looking at, you know, vendor a here. What do you think? I, I know you've you know talked to him or used them in the past or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so important. Again, it goes back to like you're saying, building these relationships that are, are really important in the, in the long run. And the savvy, the savvy vendors are actually building those communities for them, right? They're creating those, yeah. those opportunities through Slack or whatever it might be, or peer groups around different cities and, and helping to foster those communities. So, well, actually, so let's click in. I think that's really interesting. These user communities. So my, you know, and I think you're closer to this than I am, but my, my sense is that historically, you know, your technology provider, you really wanted to curate that experience. So you would have your big users conference. You probably had a user's advisory panel. You know, you have your reference database. I mean, these are all things that you have really tight control over, you know, making sure that the happiest customers are there involved or the happiest customers are on the stage at your users conference. But when you create a Slack channel or you create these more open-ended forums, you have to be comfortable right? With losing a little bit of control. So, so what's your perspective on that? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I, yeah, actually we had one of these recently where um, it was a particular vendor that has a Slack channel, one of these open Slack channels. And now people in the channel are starting to feel like it's getting moderated too heavily from the vendor because they thought it would be a safe place to collaborate with peers and, and share their woes and work through issues. But if they're getting a call from their CSM the next day, oh, I heard you had this problem. So, so it is a balance. I think you can, you can be there and be helpful, but it's really, you're, you're creating the space for the community to um, connect with each other. What well, we call it TSI intellectually honest dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> Intellectually, you just come here and this is a safe place and you can say what's you know really going on and it's not a spin and it's not uh, there's no agenda yeah no agenda yeah no so that's that is really interesting so so i want to go kind of because we're talking about how these users are changing and 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 that whole buying cycle is changing so so you know what are some of the top trends you're seeing as far as the sales experience goes Yeah. And I think, you know, as to what I was speaking to earlier, like the deep discovery and understanding business goals, I think is really important. Um, reps need to be trained on how to, how to do that effectively. And also like we're interviewing, they need to be able to 
have better conversations, um, really develop their listening skills. And there's certain techniques that we even, you know, recommend like mirroring, playing back, Mm -hmm. you know, allowing that awkward silence to be there. And even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable, really holding safe space for someone to collect their thoughts and then, and then respond. Um, Having a really positive culture because customers can feel that and they want to partner with firms that they really will enjoy working with. And that extends to everyone that they're communicating with. Mm -hmm. I think that um, also empowering the sales team. So try not to have too many levels for approvals, you know, empowering the team that they know what levers they can pull for contract flexibility, things like that. Like maybe if you're doing a discount, you're asking for a longer term for the contract commitment. Um, that'll accelerate the sales cycle and also help the prospect feel that they that the person that they're speaking with is empowered as well. Um, the other trend we're seeing is, is around customer success. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased because of my time at Gainsight, but really this um, notion that the the sales cycle, I mean, that's just the beginning. You know, they're going to be on this journey with you for years and years and then working with your, your CS team and making sure that you're helping to continue to invest in them, adopting the technology and realizing value. So having someone from post-sales involved in the sales cycle, and this might not work every time, but when appropriate, if it is a CSM that you're going to assign to the account or somebody that can just represent that side of the business and help really um, assure the prospect of what this might look like, we're seeing that can be a differentiator as well um, to help them make a decision. Yeah, it's interesting. I just did an interview with the SVP of customer success at, at Salesforce and asked this very question about how early do you get you know, your, your CS? M's involved in the sales cycle, mm-hmm. right? That, I think it's a big question because it's a resourcing issue, yeah. right? Um, but I think, you know, as we talked about that in, in, in the TSI perspective, we believe firmly in this is it's not just an issue of how early, you know, the post-sales resources get involved, but it's also about that actual handshake in terms of the information that's codified and captured between say, you know, what is the customer trying to achieve? You know, what do we understand about the environment? What are their expectations? You know, we, we call this, you know, the checklist for success and really making sure that the sales organization is committed to getting that, you know, codified on paper and handed off to the, to the post-sales team uh, so that they can be successful. Yeah. And there's a good transition there. That, that's key. I agree. And we've heard, we've heard in the interviews of times when I never heard from my account manager again, after I signed the deal, I just never saw them again. Right. So I think also having that little bit of time where the account manager maybe is involved in the kickoff call, or there's just some sort of smooth transition. The other thing, and we're seeing this across the board is this, um, the, the QBRs or the check-in calls, they customers really want that. Even if it's a 15 minute call that's on the book, say once a month um, to be able to understand what's coming on the product roadmap, talk about any of the priority support issues that are outstanding. And during onboarding, if that call is then set up for the duration, that's what they're really looking for. Just set expectations up front and then everyone knows it makes everything so much easier going forward. Well, and it goes back to the theme of, you know, how do you understand what your customers really want? You are checking in with them as part of your process and you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're not doing it. Oh, I sold you something and a year later, there's renewal or something I'm going to talk to you. It's got to be part of a process. I think the other thing I heard there, which I completely agree with, is that customers have got to believe and feel that it's a team sport in terms of them being supported. So yes, there's salespeople and there's CSMs and there may be, you know, TAMs and there may be, you know, all, you know, these different resources are involved in the account, but the customer wants to believe that that is really a team that's supporting them. It's not like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't know. I sold that to you. You got to go talk to those, those people I'm done yeah. or vice versa. Right. If this, if the CSMs are saying, well, I don't, you know, I, I'm sorry, it's not my fault. They, they sold you the wrong thing. Or, you know, that, that's not what this product really does. I mean, the customer has to believe 
that that team is is completely in lockstep, you know, for the customer success. That's what you got to pull off. Mm-hmm. And, and, and related to that, I mean, I know that you are an advocate for every customer facing role being an effective listening post, right, for these customer needs or customer frustrations, customer success managers, support technicians, delivery consultants, et cetera. How do companies build that muscle? Is, is this about soft skills training? Is this about process? How, how do you make sure you're getting all that rich insight about the customer's needs? Yeah, I think, um, gosh, you know, it's like bandwidth is a big thing, right? How many accounts does one person have? Do they, can they even have the time to be able to have these, these effective conversations? But all those skills that I mentioned about when you're interviewing and you're listening and really holding space, I think are really important. It's also cultural. And I think this comes back, you know, from, the, from leadership you need to be open to feedback. And sometimes this is really hard to hear, but knowing that it's in the spirit of learning and sharing and that there's opportunities that if somebody does hear something negative, they can take it back to their team and they can all brainstorm on, okay, in these scenarios, what's the best outcome? Um, you know, when we're, when we're sharing feedback, it's a little bit different because it's coming from a third party. So, you know, we're the, we're the messenger. And I, right. I, th- I think that does help a bit because they know that it's not biased at all. And it is in the customer's voice. We're sharing exact quotes that we heard from the transcript. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, we, we have some clients that they're not, it's, it's not as easy for them to take the feedback or they're asking us to massage the data a little bit, which, makes, <laughs> which makes it really difficult, right? Because what's the point in, in having a program like this? So, so I think, um, yeah, mirroring, listening, using all those interviewing skills. Actually, we have a little guide I can send out after if anyone's interested, but, um, we, we built a little handbook for a workshop that we ran for a, a private equity firm last year. That was just some, you know, little, little tips on, on how to be a better interviewer. Well, and I, you know, I think a couple of things I heard there. Number one, I mean, back to this concept of being intellectually honest. I mean, getting honest feedback from from customers and processing that—that's really important. I mean, you know, one of the things we do for a living is benchmarking, and and the pro, you know, the purpose of benchmarking is not to benchmark to say, oh, look how great we are. That's not what operational benchmarking is about. Mm-hmm. Benchmarking is about, hey, here's our real data, <laughs> and how are we? You know, where are we strong? Where are we weak? And you know, you're right. I mean, sometimes you have companies where the culture is whoa, whoa, whoa. That doesn't look so good, right? I don't want to. I don't want my boss to see that. It's like, no, that's just the whole purpose. Yeah. Right. You there's an issue there. You gotta. You want to dig into that as a company. This is an opportunity. So, so you know, that's an interesting. You know, sort of cultural issue. I think you know the other thing on listening and instilling that. You know, I always think about sales versus CSMs. You know, for CSMs when a customer is talking about a need, you know, an expansion opportunity, or they want to buy something new, cross or whatever, the CSM, I mean, they should feel like, hey, I, I got to get that to sales. You know, that, you know, that's my job, right? And, and it doesn't matter if they're explicitly paid for it or not, they should feel that because that's going to help the customer be more successful ultimately. And the flip side is, you know, when sales hear something negative from the customer, hey, you sold me this, but it's not working right, or, you know, we're really struggling with adoption, they should be, you know, that's their job and they should feel very comfortable taking that to the CS side of the house and saying, hey, this is what I heard. And, and I mean, that should be a, a very thick two-way data pipe between those two organizations. And it, and it is not a finger pointing and it's not, hey, I'm here to, you know, tell you, you're not, you're doing your job. It's, hey, we're, we, again, it's a team sport and we, we are both watching out for each other here to make sure that the customer is successful. So it's, you know, it's a different mentality. That's what's so great when we're working with clients on both sides, you know, on the buyer journey and the customer journey with say product marketing and CS, because we can learn from the churns as to maybe what happened through that journey. And then that way they can enable the sales team to make sure they're setting better expectations in the sales cycle about what's required for success or vice versa. You know, maybe they're turning to particular competitors, you know, you can gather a lot of competitive intelligence, which in the end 
feedback to the sales team and to product marketing. So what we're doing through these interviews is we're learning not only about product feedback gaps, what should be on the roadmap, product marketing, even how they're finding you and where you're, you know, for awareness opportunities. So there's so much rich feedback that's affecting all different lines of the business. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I just, yeah, I if I think back about the surveys, I just don't know how you would collect all of that um, through, you know, a survey necessarily you need either a hybrid approach. Right. I, I told, I told you, you, you need a richer channel for sure. And, and yeah. so, so we're talking about different ways to, to get this, this input about what the customer needs and what are some of the challenges that you see or, or the best practices in making these insights more actionable. So you start to get, you know, again, better signal liquidity, more insights. Now, how do you make them actionable? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, first making sure that you've got all the stakeholders uh, available for interviews up front, the internal stakeholders, and you build a brief about what the burning questions are, what the hypotheses might be about what's going on. Um, so everyone's on the same page about what you're trying to achieve from the project as well. And then they're invested and they're really curious to see the results. Um, so, and then I think, having some sort of cadence where you're presenting the findings back. So we, tip, we, we present individual reports on every interview, but then we also host, host a QBR. We're presenting a roll-up of the data. And that's sometimes the only opportunity that these leaders are getting together to talk about CX or about the buyer journey or what's going on. So being programmatic about it, making sure you've got functional representation, leaders from every function. Um, you, can, you can monitor those trends, as you were saying, you know, once you get that baseline and then over quarter, over quarter, you might need to be a little bit patient because even just recruiting the interviews and then conducting them and then rolling up the data, it sometimes can take a little time to get that all started. But once you get a roll on it, it does get better because even though we have a 40 to 60% recruitment rate, what I didn't mention is that we actually need over two X the target. So if we have a target of 20 interviews, as an example, we require at least 40 opportunities to be sent to us with contact info um, to be able to reach the goal. And we always recommend only interviewing from the last quarter of when the deal was when lost. Or one. Yeah, yeah. If, if you go further yeah. back than that, it can be um, a little bit too long. And and so, yeah, being patient and then also getting this, you know, having support from, from the CEO, I think is key as well. Yep, yep, great. Well, I want to end our discussion today here. You've been very gracious for your time, but I want to talk about the future of sales. So TSI believes that the sales function within most technology companies is, is ripe for transformation. And in, in our upcoming book, we have an entire chapter on this, this topic. Um, so, so for example, sales reps, you know, being much more data and analytics driven when deciding where to spend their time. But, but I'm curious, how do you think the selling of technology changes, let's say over the next five years? I think, um, you know, I think about like the great resignation, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think more empathy, more vulnerability is going to be key as this evolves, as this continues to evolve. Um, I think that the reps need to be jointly invested in the success with the customer and they need to really feel that. And that's not only relying on the reps. I think it's, you know, the reps being supported by everyone else around them and the team that they have getting executives involved, like building the relationship at multiple levels. Um, I'm seeing a lot more collaboration between sales and CS as we were talking about, because I think the model is we're going to be a lot more of land and expand, you know, get that foothold either through a POC or some sort of subset of users or capacity and then growing. Um, and then I think, you know, there's a lot more reliance on this as we were talking about product led growth, mm -hmm. really investing in the UI and the UX, um, because that's what's helping to sell it up front. So empowering the reps to be able to demo um, even if it's just, just a high level. So I think they're going to have to be a little bit more technically competent. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, it's one of the last functions in tech companies that, that really has not 
had to change the way it operates for, for decades. And if you look across, you know, product teams are operating very differently. Uh, service teams are operating very different. Marketing operates very differently. Sales pretty much operates, you know, the way it did 20 years ago in tech. Um, but I, I just don't think that's going to stand. And I, I think the economics are going to, you know, force us to be to be more efficient and effective there. So we'll see how that that one plays out. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. So, well, Natasha, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Um, I just love having these conversations with really smart people from the industry. Um, and if people want to find you, how, how can they reach you? Sure. So websites, icebergiq.com. Um, my email address is natasha at icebergiq.com. And yeah, we'd love to have conversations with anyone that would like to talk about this further. And, and thank you so much, Thomas. I really appreciated the opportunity. It was a great conversation. Oh yeah, no, this is, this is a lot of fun. This is a blast. And, and, and as always, I like to end these sessions with the big question of the day. And so the question for our audience here is how much of the $26 billion in unused features was your company responsible for? <laughs> and, can, <laughs> and can you afford to keep throwing that money away. Thanks for listening, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.